0: Good evening everyone, so what's happened so far, we've got to the point where Esses revealed her heritage to the king and that her life as a Jew was at stake. We then heard that the king put put who to death? Who was put to death? Haman. yep, he was put to death. However, the decree that all the Jews would be destroyed on an upcoming day still remained, that hadn't gone away. So, nothing really had changed. Esther, for all that she'd accomplished, is still not very powerful. She can't even approach the king without risking her life. The Jews, God's covenantal people, are still in despair, facing effectively legalised genocide. And that's to think only about 60 years earlier, King Darius, the pre- a previous king, had allowed Jews to return and start building the temple. And the temple would have only been built probably about, I wrote this down somewhere else, about 30 years or 20 years or so. Um, So that's that's crazy just to think how close. And yet, right now, it's all going completely wrong. Yet, by the end of this chapter, despair is going to turn to joy for God's people. It should seem impossible. Yet, we're going to see how this happens through four kind of events, four surprising events, and then a few thoughts around what that means for us today. Those four events are, are the surprising rewards, a bold request request granted, the reversal of the previous edict, and joyful rejoicing. So, firstly, in verses one and two, surprising rewards are given. And there's a couple. The reward of property in verse one. So Haman's now dead the crown has inherited his estate and it tells us in verse 1 that the king gives it all to Esther. We then see a reward of power to Mordecai. In verse 1 we read that Esther had told her husband, the king, all that Mordecai had done for her and the king calls Mordecai and he gives him his signet ring, the same ring that had been that sign of power for Haman who'd just been killed. In essence, he's he's made Mordecai, this guy who only, like a few chapters earlier, was on the streets and as a nobody. He's effectively made him one of the most powerful people in the the kingdom. Because that signet ring effectively meant that he was the voice of the king. Any letter signed with that signet was as if the king was writing it. Huge reward of power. And on top of this, Esther then gifts the estate of Haman... To him. So now he's got the resources and kind of prestige that matches the status he's been given. In verses 3 to 8, we see a bold request granted. Now, remember when Esther revealed the threat to her life uh, as she was a Jew in chapter 7, the king had responded to the threat against his wife, but he hadn't done anything against the wider threat to the Jews. And Esther could have been like oh great I'm probably safe now the king has dealt with the person who was against my people I'll, I'll probably be okay but no she doesn't do that she's not content to stop she comes into the throne room unexpected which if the king doesn't hold our scepter what would happen to her she get killed but thankfully he does otherwise the story would end very abruptly and this is where she delivers a very heartfelt plea for her people, the Jews. When we see the Jews, I think it's important to remember these are God's people. God's people. Even though they're scattered all over the place, it's still God's people. And she falls on her knees, weeping for the plan to be averted. Now, if you look at verse 5, at some of the plea. It's fascinating when we look at how she makes this request twice the appeal is whether the request is acceptable so if it pleases the king if the thing seems right before the king and twice the appeal focuses on whether the king sees Esther as acceptable so if I'm pleasing in his eyes and if I have found favor in his sight and she finally makes a personal plea in verse 6 on how the destruction of the Jews would impact her so she's once again aligning herself with God's people. So what is the king going to do? Because as emotional as this appeal was to the king, the king doesn't want to lose face. Kings don't want to look weak, do they? And he, he agreed to the initial request to destroy the Jews. So he can't just change his mind. It's like, it's like when the government brings in a policy and that policy is like a, a car crash. It's like it's, it's not working. Do they come out and go, we made a mistake, it was horrendous, we're going to pull it? They don't, they mumble and jumble and, and, and bluff and, because they don't want to look bad in, in reversing direction, do they? But instead of giving an immediate decision, the king considers, what have I already done in verse 7, he, he thinks. Behold, I've, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on. On the Jews, so you can always see his thought process playing out in verse seven, but in verse eight, he comes around. But what is surprising is that he declares that Esther and Mordecai kind of write this new law, this new edict themselves, and put in exactly what they want. Isn't that that sounds crazy? This huge, powerful kingdom, you can write any law you want, and you've got the stamp of approval to kind of seal it. That that is amazing. And it's, it's possible that the king's done this because he doesn't want to be seen to be involved in this law, so he's kind of standing aside and go, well, you write it, it's got, it's got nothing to do with me. But it's still surprising. The third event we then see in verses 9 to 14 is the actual reversal of the previous, previous edict or law. Now, I say reversal. Under the law, you couldn't just go, here's the law, rip it up, good, it's no longer valid. They weren't allowed to do that. So instead, they had to write, a new law. And it's all well and good the king saying you could write a new law, but the logistics of getting it done and getting it approved and getting it sent out and into into actual life, that's a different matter. Because we read that the law would have to go to 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, how far away is Susa from India and Ethiopia? So, Susa to India... Sousa to Ethiopia is over 5,500 kilometres away. Sousa to India India is over 4,000 kilometres. Now, I really should have got some kind of um, comparison. Does anyone know how far it is from here to, say, John O'Groats or, or somewhere else? A few hundred miles, yeah? Yeah, and that would be what? Not even 1,000 kilometres. And they haven't got cars. So logistically, this is a nightmare, But not only is this hand-delivered message got to go out, it's got to go to every single town and city in each of those areas without anything happening to the message or the messenger. The translation skills alone are impressive as we read that each one was sent out in the language of the people. So despite the logistical complexities, in verse 10 it's sealed, sent out. But what is the substance in verse 11? Verse 11. Well, Mordecai wrote that the Jews could gather to defend and destroy, kill and annihilate anyone that attacked them. Further, they were allowed to plunder their attackers. Now, does that wording sound familiar? Because the irony of this new law is that the original edicts used the same words, ...against the Jews originally, which was that the Jews could be destroyed, killed, annihilated, plundered. And now those same words in the new law are being flipped around in defence of the Jews. And once it's written, copies are made and it's widely distributed. Then we get to verse 15 to 17. How would the people react? Well, we see joyful responses... A joyful response for the Jews would probably be not too surprising, as they probably thought they'd never see this day. They must have seen this new law as being as good as protection as they needed, though. And in verse 16 and 17, we read that the Jews had light, gladness, joy and honour. Not just the Jews in Susa, but wherever the command reached, God was going to save his people. And it's interesting in verse 15 that actually the whole of the city in Susa rejoiced, not just the Jews. Um, maybe the non-Jews saw avoiding civil disturbance as a good thing, but then in verse 15, in verse 17 it also says then the fear of the Jews fell on these same people. Uh, it's possibly through them realising, wow, that the Jews have got a lot of influence now. The Queen and second in command are both Jews. What, what, what's happening and, and maybe that's resulted partly in their fear so four events surprising rewards a bold request granted request granted reversal of the previous edict and the joyful responses so it concluded a crazy turnaround of events for God's people but here's a question where was God while this was all going on he's not mentioned should should we take from this passage that this is about luck hard work and taking your decisions when they come. And why should we care if that is the case? Well, these questions are really important for us to understand because if it's just luck or chance or people being brave, we're basically saying, well, God isn't involved in this world. Or maybe he doesn't care about us. Or he's not powerful enough, which in itself calls into question whether Jesus can even be a saviour or even defeat death on a cross. It means that in your daily life and decisions, you're saying, we don't need to rely on him. It's me. At a deeper level, it's kind of saying that there's no real meaning to life, then, if there's no God involved. And that's so wrong. And actually, I'd I'd put it to you that Mordecai and Esther didn't think it was chance, or that God was absence. If you go back to chapter 4, Uh, In 12 to 17, um, when Mordecai is asking Esther to plead to the king on behalf of the Jews, I'll read out verse 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So in verse 14, Mordecai believes that God's people will be protected with or without Esther's help, just so that she might miss out on the blessing and maybe end up dead. Note that fact that he mentions that maybe that's why Esther has got to the position she's in. He trusts that God hasn't forgotten his people and he'll save them. Now, in verse 16, we saw that Esther asks for the Jews to fast before she goes to see the king. And we know throughout the Bible, fasting and prayer often went hand in hand. And we can assume that the fact she asked them to fast, she assumed it must make a material difference. She was asking them to seek God's favor in her request to the king on behalf of the Jews. They didn't believe in chance. They saw God working through all these things. It doesn't mean that they knew how things would happen. Would they survive? Remember, in 4 verse 16, Esther says, if I perish, I perish. But it showed that they believed in God, that was active and involved, and that they could be used by him. These happenings, not chance, but God's providence at work. So, what is providence? We hear it quite a lot, don't we, providence. But what, what is it? Well, When we hear about God's providence, we're saying that God is purposefully engaging in the world rather than being a passive observer. And it's really important that we understand this. In the 1500s, a group of ministers and theologians put together something called the Heidelberg Catechism where they put a series of questions and answers based on the Bible, created as a tool to help them teach people what scripture had to say. And they asked this question. They thought, what what is providence? So they asked the question, what do we understand by the providence of God? And based on their understanding of scripture, they came up with this answer. The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought." Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his heavenly, by his fatherly hand. That's question 27, if you do want to look it up in the Heidelberg Catechism. In other words, yes, God is active in everything. Uh, here are a few of the, the Bible verses they use to back this up. And there are, there are tons of verses Jeremiah twenty three twenty three and 4. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Matthew ten twenty nine, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. John 9, 3, which they used to suggest that even in bad situations... God is in control and Jesus answered neither this man nor his parents sinned when talking about blind man. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him so even in that situation God was there and there were many other references but it's key that you see that the Bible clearly teaches that God is actively involved in the world either directly or in using people as part of his plan. And that is something that Esther and Mordecai knew. So why would knowing God's involvement matter to Esther and Mordecai? Well, instead of self-congratulating themselves at their found wealth and power, and maybe looking out for themselves, they saw that God had given them status and power for a reason, to save God's people. Rather than locking themselves in their new fancy house till the Jews were killed... They had confidence to risk it all in asking the king to change the edict. If I perish, I perish. This is where I'm meant to be. They could be thankful that God had softened the heart of the king and used this heathen to grant them the ability to write a new law. And when it all turned out well, rather than hosting a a party to, to congratulate themselves, they could rejoice with the people, in the God who made this all possible. And we'll see more about the feast uh, in chapter 9, about what that was about. So, how should your life be impacted by knowing God is involved and active? I want to dig into this question for a few minutes. As Christians, we'll agree, or we should agree in God's divine providence that he's active in our world. But what does that mean in the day today? Well firstly like Esther and Mordecai I'd say it should affect how we use our resources and abilities knowing that they're from God to be used for his glory if you're rich or poor, skilled not skilled, good at computers good at making coffee, we've all got something we're good at or should we be able to use as part of God's uh, furthering God's kingdom but do we use them? That's a question for you to think about. Secondly, knowing God is involved and active should mean you can be thankful when things go well and patiently trusting when things go against you. Now, it's important to remember that God works in suffering as well as the good times. Now, many here will remember John Butcher, who was a a member of this church until he died of cancer in 2020. And many people, you might think, well, must be in complete despair when he was dying yet knowing God was involved in the every moment of his life meant he could talk about the excitement of what it meant knowing he was about to see Jesus and that he was trusting in God and not afraid and you can actually see that YouTube video on the church channel and through him thousands of students now have been able to see that testimony of him living for Jesus through that suffering now Young people, the next few months and years, I can tell you, you're going to feel like it's going to make you the highest highs, but also take you to the lowest lows. It's going to feel like that. I know many of you have had exams, but have you thought about where does God fit in to each moment, regardless of if things go how you want them to or they don't go how I wanted to? Have you thought about where am I going to fit God into those situations? And I'm not just talking about the big picture, the big decisions. I'm talking about the everyday, the little things that happen every day. And adults, in the many stresses and joys of life, do you look to God to to praise, to plead, to cry out, to patiently trust, knowing he is involved in every moment of every day, even if you can't understand. Like the Jews in Susa must have been like, "What, what is going on? Are you, as you're working out what to do with those mortgage payments, or you've just missed a train, or you're trying to find a job or not been able to have a baby you want to have, or in the ups when you get promotion, or you get that great deal for the car you were really looking to get, or your kid tells you they made a new friend at school. I'm not talking about trying to interpret everything as a kind of sign, if you're a Christian, knowing that God is involved should impact everything, every part of your life, every action, what you say, what you think, what you do. One good example that this week came to me was that my mum's plane in Spain was cancelled, and she was coming back to the UK, uh, she with a friend. And they were going to have to wait two extra days. And suddenly, another airline said, We've got four extra seats for any family with a, with a child and my mum was with a lady with a child, and they said, we'll, we'll, we'll go, and they managed to get those seats, because they happened to be near the front of the queue, and she told our family on WhatsApp this story, and my response was, oh, that's fortunate, and then my sister-in-law's response was, praise God, and that, that really challenged me, because while I was working on this talk, that's an opportunity for me to thank God of his providence, um, Actually, tonight, another example, I was speaking to Naomi, we were just talking about your work situation, and I was like, that's a situation where I should have said, Well, I'll pray for, for the decisions you've got to make. And these are the things I'm talking about in the everyday. These conversations should lead us back to God. Where is God involved in these situations? Thirdly, knowing God is involved and active should mean you pray more often. Isn't this why I'm looking for a new pastor, riches organising some prayer meetings next week not just because it's the right thing to do it's because we believe God is involved in the everyday and we need his support and wisdom that's why I believe Esther waited three days in in chapter 4 before going to the king so that they could do that very thing fourthly, knowing God is involved and active should give us confidence in sharing the gospel it's clear that God uses people rather than us sitting down doing nothing he uses people. And yes, it could mean that you have to take risks like Esther. You ain't, let me tell you this. You won't have any problems at work or school if you keep your mouth shut. I can tell you that right now. But if you witness, you will find opposition because you're doing something that is hard but also is something that the devil doesn't want you to do. And lastly, and I, there's so many other examples I could give here about reading the Bible how we talk to one another but, but the last one that I said I put down that knowing God is involved and active should mean you daily look to the cross where Jesus has had the ultimate victory over sin because Jesus daily continues to intercede before us on behalf it's, Jesus daily intercedes before the Father on behalf of us every day His victory over our continual failures means we can walk with God every day knowing he holds us up and we can go to him. And we can remember he's won. And just like the Jews could rejoice, that one day we will rejoice in heaven when, although sin is defeated now, we will be in perfect bodies knowing that forevermore we'll be able to see Jesus face to face for eternity. So as I finish, for God's people... In Esther I'd say that they saw the providence of God transforming the desperation into delight and we just need to remember that that God is still involved today not just in the macro we 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 know we always think about God in the macro in the big decisions in life but also the day-to-day in the mundane Jesus is involved so do do we live like that's true That's something really for us to think about, pray about. I'll just finish in prayer. Dear God, thank you that you are a God that is involved in this world. Thank you that you are a God that we can call you Father. And if we are yours, if we are saved, we know that day by day you are with us in all situations. In those situations where we just want to rejoice and celebrate good things have happened in those moments where we are in despair and we feel like the world is falling apart Lord help us to know that in those situations you're still teaching us you're still leading us and we can still look to you thank you for being faithful help us in our lives where we continually let you down Lord to continually come back to your word come back to you and remember that day by day you're still with us amen